0: This podcast is for adults 21 years of age or older. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, come back when you are. Spoke Media. Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah and Bean. And welcome back for yet another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. On this show, my partner Bean and I, who are both cannabis journalists and media makers, Go through one of the more fascinating points in the long, long, long history of cannabis. This episode is actually part two in a two-parter about Tom Prasad, the founder of High Times Magazine. So if you haven't yet heard part one, I suggest you go listen to that first and then come back and pick it up here with part two when we last left off, Tom Prasad had led a crazy life. He had been involved in the underground press. He had been involved as a drug smuggler and he had been brought up on federal charges and he had not yet started the magazine that we know him for today. Being, I'm imagining we're gonna get into that today.
1: As you said, when we left off, he had been federally indicted for a plot to firebomb the Republican National Convention. Uh, oh. Something I think, you know, we can all relate to mistakes you make in your youth.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, the young are wild, wild at heart, you know what I'm saying? Uh,
1: Who among us hasn't been indicted on federal charges? Uh, And of course, these charges, like so much that's thrown at him are bullshit, and they don't stand up to scrutiny. Uh, But at the time, him and his girlfriend, Cindy, his partner in crime, his partner in all these creative endeavors, uh, were facing like 20 years each. They managed to win an acquittal at trial. and uh, i'll just I'll just repeat this quote from tom to to reset us in the story. Mm-hmm. He said, "I had just been acquitted of an explosives charge, and I went into a long period of self-examination to determine what I wanted to do next. The movement was over, and I needed something to keep from killing myself out of boredom. And so, aided by many tanks of nitrous oxide, I came up with high times,
0: high times was a huge part of my understanding of cannabis as a young kid and getting older and getting to actually have an article published in the magazine a few times was an amazing treat for me. And I really
1: didn't know uh, the amazing history of its founder. And, you know, for me, uh, I was a high-time staffer for 10 years. It is one of the greatest experiences of my life. It was an honor and a privilege to be a part of it. Um, And I'm really happy to be here uh, with you to tell this story. So I think, with that, we're ready for another great great moment in in weed weed history. history. (laughs)
0: Poke-media! <laughs> righty. so, Bean, as I get this joint rolled up, why don't you bring us back into this story?
1: Alright, but I gotta do a little something first. What's that? Do you remember me, uh, kinda telling you there'd be a little surprise at the end of, uh, part one?
0: That's right, you did mention a surprise, what's going on? I'll be right back! Oh shit! Oh shit! I love
1: surprises! Good ones, anyway. Abdullah, let me introduce you to Rex Weiner. He's He uh, was a very close friend of Tom Fassad's. He was foundational to the founding of High Times Magazine. Wow. He's had many adventures in publishing. Uh, his writings appeared in Vanity Fair, The Paris Review, The New Yorker, LA Weekly. He uh, wrote an episode of Miami Vice. He's uh, no a way. screenwriter. Uh, and really, I'm just thrilled to have somebody here who... New Tom Farsad and can really talk to us from that personal experience. Thanks for coming. Well, thank
2: you, Bean, and thank you, Abdullah.
1: Yo, know, it is my pleasure. Rex, welcome
0: to the Great Moments in Weed History studio. Since I was a kid, High Times was a huge part of my understanding of cannabis culture. I moved around a lot. No matter how isolated I was, uh, I could always go to the sort of alt record store and pick up high times and look at weed porn, which is really what appealed to me. Well, Abdullah, it's funny that you say weed porn. You know, when Tom
2: uh, first sat down with me in, uh, gosh, I guess it was 72, 73, and said he wanted to do a Playboy for the counterculture ah. audience, a, a stoned version of Playboy, and one of the, the features, he said would be a centerfold, except instead of a nude woman, which was getting old at that time. Well, Mm. maybe not. Anyway, (laughs) instead of uh, a nude woman, there would be the most beautiful, most luscious, the most desirable Mm -hmm. bud. (laughs) Hell yeah. And uh, I listened to Tom and I thought, well, that's an interesting idea, Tom. You know, uh, a magazine all about weed. It's worth a try.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And up until that point, had you been in publishing or journalism, anything like that?
2: I was the um, I was managing something called the Underground Press Syndicate. Ah. And um, as I'm sure you talked about in part one, it was a syndicate of or uh, a loose organization of underground newspapers
1: all around the country and around the world. How did you first come into the orbit of Tom Fassad, and, and what were your uh, early impressions of him? We were
2: putting together the New York Ace, and we had a, an office on 16th Street, but we had no office equipment, no chairs, no desks, no furniture, nothing. And somebody said to me, well, you should go see Tom Fassad. His office is just a block away, and he's got a whole bunch of desks from some source and so we, um, I went over to his loft on 17th Street, and th- the minute I walk in, I knew this is, this is somebody unusual. Everyone was living in a tent in the middle of the loft. Huh. There was a whole sort of commune or tribe or something there.
1: Those tents are now $3,200 a month. <laughs> yeah. Airbnb, right?
2: And so, uh, so I met Tom there, and uh, he said, sure, Take whatever you want. And there was a whole stack of desks going up to the ceiling. And um, that's how we furnished our first uh, office of the New York Ace. But in the process, um, there was something else unusual in that loft, which was a a big tank of laughing gas. Nitrous. (laughs) Nitrous. (laughs) Uh,
0: Hippie crack.
2: (laughs) Tom offered me a hit. Texas uh, tea. (laughs) Yeah, we just, you know, uh, and so we had a few laughs, as it were. And um, over the uh, next uh, few months and years, we became very good friends. He was a committed political activist of the most anarchistic sort. He he really believed if there's a left and a right, he was outside of all of that. He tried to be a third force, unpredictable, uncontrollable, totally self-contained and autonomous and unique and original.
1: What you said reminds me of this book he was very influenced by called Agents of Chaos. And it talked about how there's three forces, just as you say, the dominant force that's in charge. There's the counterculture force that is against it, but also linked to it. And then there's chaos. Mm -hmm. And uh, from everything I know from studying his life, he was for chaos and he thought chaos was a prerequisite to any kind of real change. Otherwise, if the dominant force is overthrown by the opposition, the opposition is just going to become the dominant force. And we see that all the time. And he felt that chaos... Had to come first. And I know that Agents of Chaos gave its name to an organization that you were involved with, Rex. Well, true enough. And let's give credit to the great science fiction
2: writer Norman Spinrad, who was the author of Agent of Chaos. And I was lucky enough to do an introduction to an edition of his novel, uh, in which I tell the story about How how Tom introduced me to this book and this whole philosophy. And I decided, well, I was inspired by Tom's own example. He was called to deliver testimony to a uh, federal commission on obscenity. Are you aware of this?
0: Yep. Uh, so we heard about this in the last episode, but I would definitely like to hear from you, Rex. Well, we were all in
2: awe and admiration of Tom's bold an accurate testimony at this federal commission on obscenity in which he said it all by throwing a pie in the face of this commissioner. I believe it was the first political pieing in history. Man, that's so dope. And have there been more pieings since then? Well, yes, I made sure of that because what I did was I put together an organization called the Agents of Kill Unlimited. Not to stretch a point, but you've heard of ISIS? I have. Okay, we were icing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Hey-oh! He'll be here all week, folks. (laughs) All
0: right, so I totally see why Bean brought you on, not only (laughs) uh, for your wealth of knowledge and your participation in this history, but because... You have a penchant for pawns.
2: <laughs> the agents of Piekill. As soon as we launched, it became a widespread phenomenon. We had up to, uh, I guess, at our peak, a dozen agents and uh, a lot of contracts. We were making good money, and everyone was well trained. By the way, I, I, you know, this wasn't any kind of, you know, bullshit. Because what I was really doing, and I'll confess this now, I was training people for the time when we would all have to go up in the hills. This was the time when Nixon was in charge and, mm-hmm. you know, Watergate was still a third-rate burglary. And we had this feeling that uh, fascism was going to
1: rule the, the land and we'd have... Rex, excuse me, but I live in 2019. Yeah, and never I have felt no that feeling. point of reference I have for no that feeling. no idea what
0: you're talking about. So uh, you're saying a
1: repressive authoritarian government is, is ratcheting up? Uh, the move towards a kind of fascist dictatorship in in America. Imagine that.
2: You wouldn't be suggesting that a uh, agents of Pike will be
0: revived,
1: would you? Uh, certainly not in that context.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no. This is like so. This, yeah. It, it truly is Pisces. You guys. Uh, you, guys uh, seriously- yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you guys are seriously. I'm against the prize. You guys are seriously training and i mean like i would be really curious to see footage from this training camp where you guys are training for pie hits
1: like those grainy black and white (laughs) (laughs) it's probably on file at the fbi (laughs) and and what what did tom think of all this what did tom feel about agents of pie kill
2: well tom was cool but he had already moved on to his his life's work which was behind the scenes at uh, high times he was one of the pioneers of um, the trade routes from Colombia. You know, he was a businessman, uh, an import-export guy. And uh, so he admired
1: what, what we were doing and, and gave it his blessing. So after the indictment and he was acquitted by Tom's description, he went back to New York. He was pretty depressed. He didn't really know what to do next. Nixon had just been reelected. And he's kind of in this downward funk. It's December 1972. And you show up at his apartment trying to cheer him up. I said, Tom, look at this story in the newspaper.
2: There's a, a ship, a cruise ship, going to watch the last Apollo moonshot. And it's leaving from port here in New York City. And on board, there were going to be top scientists from NASA Top top science fiction writers like Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov, wow. and celebrities like Hugh Downs, who had the Tonight Show, and uh, mm. Norman Mailer, the author, and Catherine Ann Porter, who wrote *Ship of Fools*. I said, "Tom, look, this is a ship of fools. We should go because there are all of these other reporters, media invited to go for free." But he looked at the story and he immediately understood what was going on. He said, dig it, man. It's the elites. They're planning to leave the earth after they fucked it up and they're going to settle in elite communities on the moon and Mars. And that was Tom's insight. And we were smoking some really dynamite weed at the time. And so I, (laughs) I said, of course, yeah, Tom, that's exactly what this is. We've got to get on that ship and report for the underground press, why exclude us? And so uh, we gathered a, a group of friends and had a little, went down to the uh, the dock, and uh, there was the ship. It was the SS Stottendam, one of the Dutch America cruise liners, and beautiful, fancy ship. The horn blew, and the announcement came, you know, everyone not going on the cruise, uh, time to go ashore. And everyone got off the ship, all of our friends. And there was Tom and me. And we watched as the skyline of New York uh, slipped off into this. And suddenly I turned <laughs> you and I stowed stowed said, Tom, away are, on Tom, are thing? we really doing this? We stowed away? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Holy shit. And so... Um, you know, basically all we had was what we were wearing, and uh, I got to know Tom pretty well. He uh, confided to me something that few other people knew, which was that he had been diagnosed as a uh, manic depressive, a bipolar, and so he mm. had medication for that, which I thought, well, this is very honest, and, you know, thank you for letting me know. And so, are you taking your medication? Well, it turns out that Tom left his medication on shore, and instead he had a whole pocket full of pills, powders, and potions, uppers, downers, LSD. Oh, boy. A little bindle of Coke, uh, some meth, and uh, he proceeded to take all of that stuff and went every which way. Whoa. So after the, the moon launch, which was, you know, probably the high point of the whole thing, he started to go south. Oh, shit. And so there I am stuck with this super depressed guy. Now, there was a reporter from the New York Times on board, Tom Buckley, and he interviewed us and we allowed him to interview us with the provision that he doesn't file the story until we're off the ship. So, after the moon launch, Tom and I are on deck and uh, we look over the railing and there's Tom Buckley, the New York Times reporter in a dinghy, uh, you know, heading back to Miami. (laughs) And we went, oh, no, because we knew what was going to happen. And sure enough, the next day, it came out in the New York Times that there was this cruise and all of these people.
1: I can actually read the New York Times account uh, as published. December 12th, 1972, the New York Times reports, there were also two uncounted freeloaders or stowaways on board. These were Tom Fassad, the leader of the Zippies, and Rex Weiner, the editor of the New York Ace, an underground publication. The two young men, who said they thought they deserved a vacation after the rigors of fomenting demonstrations at the political conventions in Miami Beach, set themselves up in a comfortable cabin, which they vacated early each morning after making the berths and tidying up. They spent their days sunning themselves, accepting drinks from the many passengers who were in on their secret, and hinting broadly that they had some really spectacular deviltry up their sleeves. (laughs) (laughs) Quote, we were thinking about opening the seacocks, said Mr. Facade, when we realized that we didn't have any seats in the lifeboats. (laughs) (laughs) Still undiscovered and deciding not to push their luck, they left the ship in St. Thomas on Saturday, uncertain as to how they would return to New York.
2: Well, if it's in the New York Times, Bean, then it must be true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no. I want to I pick up Tom's story after the stowaway incident. As I understand the story, he and Cindy go down to Florida for a bit of the winter And he is, on the one hand, checking in on his smuggling operations, and on the other hand, starting to really put ink to paper and come up with a plan for high times. And then he returns to New York. He's all excited about this idea. They put this thing out on a shoestring. They have really high standards. They get some ads from the paraphernalia companies of the day, like your Easy Widers, your Grow Your Own Mushroom Kits, but they hit a problem. No distributor in the country wants to carry a magazine called High Times that has a weed centerfold and teaches you how to grow, smuggle, sell, and consume a Schedule One narcotic.
0: Yeah, right. So... I mean, of course, we know that high times ended up being in a certain type of store. But who was the first to do that? Because obviously, weed is far more illegal uh, in the time that we're talking about. Well, Abdullah, uh, they were called head shops. Right. Okay,
1: gotcha. (laughs) Every town had one. Mm -hmm. And I know another strategy that Tom Frasad had to distribute the magazine in the early days was he had all these dealers who would pick up weight from him. And he said, okay, you take such and such amount of pounds. That's all good. With that, you have to buy this many magazines and you can (laughs) flip them for twice as much. And apparently all the dealers at first were like, I don't sell magazines. What the fuck? You know, and then they all came back and were like, "Okay, I'll have the same amount of weed and I need twice as many magazines. (laughs) And that's like when they knew it was going to be a hit with the intended audience. It was a
2: truly independent uh, publication. And uh, yeah, the dealers and and the boutique owners who became over the years the place where you could go buy high times along with your bong and your glow in the dark poster It was a new economy, a new kind of capitalism, and um, really the forerunner of what's happening now. But uh, I don't think Tom would recognize what's happening now, and he'd probably have a few opinions on it.
0: Yeah, you know, I bet he never would have guessed that cannabis legalization, the thing I'm sure he was fighting towards, in essence, right, would actually turn into a tool for corporate America to take over cannabis. And it's a really, really ugly truth of this post cannabis legalization world that we live in. What do you think Rex, what do you think Tom Prasad would think of the capital cannabis landscape of 2019?
2: Well, I I think he would take a dim view of the way things are going now and the, the super corporate conglomerate uh, approach, even Though, at the same time, he would be seeking to, um, you know,
1: get a piece of the action, I'm sure. So, now we got the magazine in place, we got the advertisers, we got the distribution, and High Times went from a complete shoestring startup to selling 300,000 copies a month and employing a editorial staff of 20 people within one year. Mm. But for Tom... Uh, Success brought with it a host of challenges as he wrote in an editorial letter called What High Times is All About. Uh, And so this is him in his own words High Times was a coldly conceived project that we definitely expected to succeed eventually. Instead, it took off like a rocket, and our main problem has been holding on to our personal identities, to our editorial independence, to our corporate independence, to reality to our own unique rapport with our readers, to our sanity. We are facing a future that needs help. We know that as far as that future is concerned, we are playing for keeps.
2: We had a concept at the time of the righteous dealer and, um, and that was what Tom sought to be, how to govern his actions as a person and as, as a businessman which had to do with the, uh, Bob Dylan lyric, uh, to live outside the law, you must be honest. He would say that nine times a day and, you know, try to, uh, uphold it. But we were on the adversarial end. We were used to being, you know, not losing, but just, you know, just not winning. And suddenly there's Tom and, uh, a staff of, uh, 20, 25 people and, uh, a success story. High Times was a success from the very first issue. And not just, you know, in business terms, but in editorial terms. I mean, we had the most amazing content and, uh, you know, including my stories. We published all sorts of great stuff. uh, Bean, you would remember some of these writers and articles, Hunter Thompson on the cover, Uh, We were the first magazine to have Debbie Harry on the cover talking about New
1: Wave. He had access to this incredible talent pool because of the underground press syndicate. And now he was able to pull in all of these people into his vision because, like you say, it had that one element that was always missing, which was financial uh, success. Mm. Time and Newsweek both wrote, like, glowing stories about the publishing success story of the 70s. Bob Marley sat for his first National Magazine cover interview, which was also with Ed Dwyer. Uh, oh. And he said the Santa Marta gold that they supplied him was the best weed he'd ever smoked outside Jamaica. Oh, amazing. Uh, Cheech and Chong were on the cover. Um, it's Everybody seems to like be just loving this new thing that was just waiting to happen. There was the culture, but there was no voice for it. Mm. But for Tom, success, again, kind of like throws him for a loop. And he, you know, as as Rex said, he alternates between these manic states where he's super engaged, hyper engaged, going over every little detail of everything and dark holes. Uh, people used to call him Captain Bad Vibes. Shit. At times, um, Rex is nodding with some rough memory of that.
2: Well, he'd call me up at 3 in the morning at the at the peak of high-time success and say, Rex, I'm going to fire everybody tomorrow morning, close down the magazine. And I'm sitting there going, hmm. if I say no, he'll do it anyway. If I say yes, maybe he won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say... Uh, yeah, Tom, it's your magazine. Go ahead. Shut the damn thing down. Fire everybody, especially that person I don't like there. And, uh, <laughs> and that would shake him up for a moment, and then he'd laugh, and, and then he'd drift off. But uh, he was um, mercurial. He was changeable. He was absolutely unmanageable, and you couldn't tell him anything if he was in a certain state of mind and, and that made it difficult for people at high times to meet their deadlines and their production schedules and, you know, get bills paid on time and, and uh, you know, deal with the, uh, the receptionist who we all knew was the informant.
1: So we had to, you know, keep that person. Over there,
0: you
1: know. <laughs> 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 pretty standard in any office type environment. You know, you just have to assume one person is a government informant, is a and, yeah. yeah. And you just have, you know, the real birthday party, and then you have a fake birthday party where you invite the informant for. <laughs> pretty standard, um, yeah. So people on the magazine, you know, kind of learn to ride these waves, and they would kind of just try to hang on until Tom decided to quote meet with investors. Which everyone understood meant he was going to go on a smuggling run. Mm-hmm. Arguably, he no longer needed the money, but he felt most at ease when he was courting danger. He's doing it for the rush. He's doing it for the rush. Um, we're gonna get uh, take a break in a minute. We'll we'll smoke some weed for for money and love. Uh, and when we come back, we'll I'll talk about how even when things would go wrong on a smuggling run, uh, the adrenaline of that just pushed him higher and. He'd pull himself out of these uh, dark holes We'll be right back
0: Smoke Weedia We're back We're talking about Tom Fassad The founder of High Times And we're here with Rex Weiner Who was there when all this shit happened And when we left off Bean, you promised you'd tell us about A smuggling run gone awry
1: yeah, so one time uh, Tom was down in the Everglades and he was going to take possession of a nine-ton shipment of weed, uh, which is, think of a ton of weed <laughs> and then times it by nine. <laughs> that's
0: that's a that's, lot of fucking weed. That's a lot of weed.
1: Uh, yeah, as we said in episode one, he said there's two kinds of dealers. Guys who need a forklift and guys who don't need a forklift. <laughs> he, He needed a forklift. But when he gets there to the Everglades, it turns out the supplier was supposed to have a whole crew to unload this, but he didn't. Uh, Oh, shit. Yeah. So working side by side without a break, it took Tom and his longtime smuggling partner, Jack Coombs, more than 24 hours to load all those bales of weed into their Winnebago.
0: Oh, my God. Nine tons of weed. I mean... That's like, we're talking metric tons here, right? (laughs) Like, how much weed can a guy carry, you know, at one time? A hundred pounds of it, maybe, you know what I mean? Like,
1: that's insane. I can imagine. 24 fucking hours. And then, as they're finally driving away in this Winnebago stuffed with nine tons of weed, a wildlife officer spots their vehicle and starts trying to essentially pull them over. Uh, But Mm. Tom is this experienced hot rodder from his youth. And he's like, fuck it. And he takes off full speed through the swamp, trying to get away from this wildlife officer. And finally, Tom gets to the end of the road and he sees it's blocked by another police car. So he runs the Winnebago as far off the road as he can manage, kind of crash lands it. And him and Jack Coombs, his smuggling partner, run off on foot. They just have to abandon nine tons of weed, and they run into the swamp. Oh my God, it's like a Breaking Bad situation. Yeah, so the cops you know, try to find them, they can't find them, they send out bloodhounds, but the bloodhounds lose the scent. Uh, uh, but Tom and his buddy are He's stuck. He's like, what
0: do you mean they lost the scent? They're bloodhounds! <laughs>
1: So for the next two days, they're stuck in the swamp, they're soaking wet, there's insects swarming all over them, they don't have any food or water, and they're like totally desperate. You know, they're dying of thirst, and they decide their only chance is to crawl on their hands and knees Past the police barricade, because all the cops, or the pigs, mm-hmm. as uh, to use the parlance of the time, yeah, are sitting now. <laughs> yeah, are sitting in their cars with the AC blasting, so they're like Pink Panther style, just crawling <laughs> along the side of the of the door, and they escape. <laughs> so what happens next? Well, you know, the magazine just keeps getting bigger and the success of that is sort of juxtaposed against this increasing dark side of Tom Fassad coming out. You know, in a way, he he wrote this essay where he talked about how the most successful weed smugglers and weed dealers are the people you never hear about. Mm -hmm. Um, And now, in this one sort of act... He's brought all this attention on himself. I think there's definitely, there's shades of what happened with Orpheus lingering over him. He had already created a publication, seen it attacked by the government. His office is firebombed. He ran away. And now he's getting those same feelings. Um, And his smuggling operation is ongoing. And that's kind of his escape route from it. But what what was the feeling like in the magazine at this point, a few years into it? We felt
2: successful. We felt we were really making progress and making a mark in the world for uh, for weed and for the counterculture. And uh, Tom was not a a drug snob, but he did believe in the weed as a uh, antidote to uh, a certain kind of, you know, straight corporate mindset. And uh, so it was sort of his mission to bring in weed in that righteous dealer way. At the same time, you had um, much more businesslike and and definitely more deadly people from Colombia flying in the product on their own. This, you know, vast network of, well, that's where the cartels began Hmm. in Bogota
1: and Medellin and some real nasty characters. The war on drugs doesn't fight the cartels. The war on drugs created the cartels. Yeah. Because when you have these really serious prison sentences, and we, we did an episode about a gentleman, Robert Platshorn who did 30 years for smuggling into the country, and he was on the cover of High Times, his story was. Um, but that pushes all the nice guys and nice ladies out and what moves in are these cartels. Mm-hmm. And yeah, to see Tom sort of losing another dream is is really hard, uh, I can imagine. And I think one thing that gave him a lot of hope at this same period of time was this rise of the punk movement, right?
2: Yes, High Times was the first magazine to have Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols on its cover. Ah. Seems and,
0: appropriate.
2: Yeah. And, uh, you know, Tom really liked the spirit of it. He was not well, well received by the um, punk rockers himself. He was sort of an old guy by then and a, a hippie and, you know,
1: not really. An old guy being in his early 30s. Yeah. yeah which as to as the as punk pro- movement is like, <laughs> ancient, you're done. <laughs> yeah. And to that, that old hippie saying, never trust anybody over 30. Yeah. Yeah, and he he sees this happening in real time. He's in New York, which was the center of it, and he's got this uh, magazine, and he's very much just in the mix. They're close to the Lower East Side. They're close to where CBGB's was. Um, so Tom Fassad decides that when the Sex Pistols are going to have their first tour of the United States, he's going to make a definitive documentary about this tour which, if you know anything about it, is like one of the most ill-fated tours in music history. For some reason, Uh somebody decided the Sex Pistols should tour small venues in the South. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) And Tom also has no connection whatsoever with the band. Warner Brothers, their record label, hates him over a long-standing dispute where he went to one of their other films and disrupted it on purpose constantly. (laughs) <laughs> they tell the sex pistols manager There's this guy Tom Fassad He's a government informant He's trying to set you up for a drug bust Don't have god. anything to do with him At any cost
0: Holy shit Oh my god this guy Is fucking
1: wild <laughs> The shenanigans That's some good trolling Yeah so so he In classic Tom Fassad style He shows up at the first stop on the tour with a bag of money and a bag of weed. And he goes to the tour manager. And I'm sure this, most people in the 70s took one or the other bag or both. I don't think it's a bad plan, Uh, but this guy (laughs) has it in his mind. Oh, this guy's coming to set me up for a drug bust. And he shows up, hi, you want cash or weed? I I, want to film your band. Uh, They'll have nothing to do with him. He's just following this tour. He's got like a a stitched together film crew. You know, (laughs) I know you enjoy the word ragtag. Oh, yes, absolutely. So this is a ragtag production, huh? This is a ragtag crew of people chasing the sex pistols around as they go from one stop in the south to another where people are protesting them. The audience is turning on them. They're all deeply into substance abuse. It's a disaster, following a disaster, filming a disaster. And of course, he sort of loves this. (laughs) So when anybody else would give up, he sends a message to High Times headquarters in New York. I need you to send me 12 blank checks Mm -hmm. so I can finish my uh, film about the Sex Pistols. So whoever was in charge of the purse strings at high time says, well, you know, my fiduciary responsibility is not to send you 12 blank checks, which, you know, I'm not a business guy. I don't know what's right or wrong, but (laughs) (laughs) that was the decision. Uh, So Tom is enraged. He kind of collects whatever footage he has. It is eventually turned into this film called DOA. Uh, Wow. um, That's something to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then in his rage, he goes back to New York, And everybody involved with the magazine on staff at the time gets an embossed invitation, inviting them to go to an upscale hotel's ballroom. They don't know why. Everybody shows up and Tom Fassad is sitting in a throne and he holds a loyalty trial in the vein of Mao Zedong.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Were you at this thing, Rex?: <laughs> No, but I knew
2: he was planning to do this, and uh, and I couldn't tell him no. <laughs> I just thought, you know, if I steer clear, maybe you know I won't get hit by any flying debris. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I had so many friends there at at high times, but you know, it's sort of like uh, you know, just keeping your distance from a, a dangerous situation, and and they all went through it because they were they were on salary. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I wasn't. I could do as I pleased. So, you know, Tom was an ongoing trial in a way. And uh, that, was, uh, that was an unforgettable
1: episode for those who were there. <laughs> so actually at this trial... He puts all of his, uh, you know, perceived opponents and enemies on trial one by one. If you are found guilty, you're terminated on the spot. Mm. And those who were exonerated got a little red book as a keepsake and a little uh, silver medal. And, you know, life went on at the magazine. My God, that's nuts. <laughs> so despite reasserting control through this loyalty trial, Tom starts to feel really isolated and unwanted. Uh, he spends a lot of hours just holed up in his office, washing down quaaludes with vanilla extract. Uh, that's a very specific taste. Yeah, jeez. Uh, he feels like everybody wants his money and nobody really loves him. I mean, anybody who knows somebody with mental illness can, can relate to where these dark places go. Yeah. Um... So he decides he's going to cook up a little smuggling action for himself to pull himself out of the doldrums.
0: Ah, he's going back to his favorite pastime.
1: Yeah. Um, so he, him and his partner Jack Coombs are down in South Florida. Well, they're, they're, they're on a smuggling run and they're flying two planes in into the Everglades, into one of these airstrips that you talked about that are, that are hidden and Jack Coombs is in the plane in front of him And the idea is that you fly in low over the treetops Mm. so that no one sees you and you don't come up on radar. And there's a a Stephen Stills song called Treetop Flyer that's about this. A lot of guys who came back from Vietnam saw a way to use their skills. Tom, when he signed up for the Air National Guard, that was in the back of his mind. Mm. So they're flying in in tandem and Jack is in the front plane and Tom is behind him. And he watches as his best friend and really his confidant and his smuggling partner uh, clips a wing. Oh, and his shit. plane just tumbles and explodes. And Tom is able to pull up and and avoid the wreckage. But he's crushed by this loss. Uh, yeah, I and, can
0: imagine. That's terrible.
1: Yeah, and it plunges him back into a depression um, from which he never really recovers for a while he has this idea that jack survived and and he's going to show up and he sends people to look for him and he goes to look for him himself and it's just a fever dream you know he Mm -hmm. knows on some level he saw him die Mm -hmm. um and this kind of sends him into his final depression and and i'll just read something from the last interview he ever gave Mm. he said the government has tapped my phones where i live including my bedroom To this day, they've got informers planted against me. They've planted women informers to try to fuck me. They've planted informers in positions as high-times office managers and accountants. They don't stop there either. The government has used informers against me as dope dealers, dope smugglers, pseudo-radical activists, gun dealers, explosive dealers, and even lawyers. Um, And in this interview, he just um, seems at the end of his rope, uh, and then in November... 1978, as the days grew short and Tom's bipolar disorder really kicks in again, he took his own life with a pistol shot to the head, Uh, a desperate act, but one that he calibrated very carefully to ensure that he did not feel any more pain in death than he had in life. That's a very, very sad end to a really epic story.
0: Really creative people are very often also very depressed people. And it's really a tragic loss, and it's really sad that we didn't get to see more of the creative output of Tom Fursad.
1: For him to have created that space, for there to be a place for me as a young journalist who was really... We'd brought so much into my life. And on the, on the other hand, the war on drugs made me so angry. And to have a place where I was not only allowed to voice those sentiments, but celebrated for it, and a readership that supported that truth at a time when it was a a voice in the wilderness, that's an incredible legacy that touched me many decades after he passed. Mm -hmm. Let us go out on a high note. That was a cheap one, (laughs) but I'm keeping it. (laughs) That's good. Uh, Yes, so not long after uh, Tom Frasad's passing, a private memorial was held at Windows on the World Restaurant, which was at the top of the World Trade Center, so as to be as high as possible. For the ceremony, friends, family, colleagues, and co-conspirators all gathered together from all the different compartments of Tom Frasad's very complicated life to celebrate his unique spirit and mourn his untimely passing all while puffing away on an endless supply of joints seasoned with a small sprinkle of his ashes.
0: Oh, that's so amazing. What a fitting memorial for a guy who revolutionized cannabis in this really specific and interesting way. Well, that's a really incredible cannabis history story. Thank you so much, Bean, for speaking so personally about this story I know that High Times was a really important thing to you an important thing for your career and your exploration of yourself and your love for cannabis. And to hear you talk about the person that originated that magazine, somebody who you idolize, really, I mean, I can't imagine a better way to learn all the shit that I just learned. And Rex, so amazing to have you here. Rex Weiner, weed legend, Miami Vice writer, and really just an amazing asset to cannabis. Thanks so much for being here and talking about your experience. You've seen so much shit. You've experienced a past era of subculture and of cannabis culture that young people today should really be able to appreciate. And I hope that this brought your voice to them because learn your weed history. That's why we're here. We're here to teach you about weed stuff that we don't want to forget because it's so important to our way of life and our state of mind and that's it for this two-parter about tom Prasad, the founder of high times magazine go back to the beginning and listen to it again and don't forget when it comes to throwing a pie don't be afraid give it a toss (laughs) amazing an amazing ending very fitting for this episode And thus concludes our two-parter about Tom Prasad, the founder of High Times Magazine. What an epic story. Do not expect one of these about Shane Smith. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Great Moments in Weed
1: History. Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean, and Abdullah Saeed. We're produced by Cody Hoffmachel and Brigham Mosley with help from Lee George and Reyes Mendoza. Special thanks to Gold Diggers Studio. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Our executive producers are Aaliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds.
0: Check out our show notes where you'll find more information about things we discussed today and links to our sponsors.
1: And if you really love the show, honestly, the best thing you could do for us is to simply tell your friends about it at the next Smoke Sesh. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You could put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, aka Bean.